Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and today we are going to do a show on the idea of defeating ISIL and the potential implications that this might bring about. As you know in the news there's been a lot of airstrikes and a lot of talk about ISIL's power in the region, whether they're slowly starting to lose their strength and they also are losing territory as we've seen. So this will be a really, really interesting talk. I do want to make a announcement in the sense of yesterday's tragic events in Orlando, Florida and the shooting and first of all, our hearts go out to all the family and friends of the victims. And I do want to say that we actually had the show scheduled before this happened. We might talk a little bit about instances, but um, we had this way before all of these events happened. So our guest today is Phil Walter. He's been on the show before, and it's great to have him back. So welcome again to the show, Phil. Thank you very much for having me back, Chelsea. It's great to be back on the Loopcast. And it's great to have you. Why don't you give our listeners an idea of who you are if they hadn't listened to your last show that you were on? Okay. Uh, my name is Phil Walter. I have uh, been fortunate enough to serve in the military, both on uh, active duty and in reserves, both as enlisted uh, and as a, as a military officer. I've served in the intelligence community, and uh, I've served in an interagency assignment. And uh, when I am not uh, doing my regular job, I get to write uh, national security articles, and I get to do cool things like appear on the Loopcast. <laughs> well, we're so glad that you're doing cool things like appearing on the Loopcast. And for our listeners, this show came about because Phil had an article published very recently on June 3rd in Lawfare, and it was titled, Defeating ISIL Will Strengthen IS. And I read it, and I really loved your thoughts in this article, Phil. You really touched on things that I feel like are not really being thought of in the whole big perspective of what is happening right now with airstrikes in Syria and Iraq. So let's look at this topic around this article and delve in deeper. In the article, you talk about at the beginning of May, Colonel Stephen Warrens of the U.S. Army, and he's a spokesman for the Operation Inherent Resolve. He conducted a question and answer on Reddit. In this, he discussed and assessed ISIL's center of gravity. So that was a big term that you talked about at the starting of your article. So I wanted to look at this statement, and I wanted to ask you, was this also a reasoning for writing this article? What were your motivations? So it's interesting. Um, actually, a few months before, I think it may have been in February, um, before uh, Colonel Warren held this Q&A session on Reddit, I went to a conference that was uh, focused on ISIL. And um, among people who have served in the military or worked kind of in the strategy or planning world, many people study a Prussian general named Karl von Clausewitz. He wrote this great book called On War that was actually published after his death by his wife, and he has a, a term that um, is established and kind of reoccurs throughout the book that he calls center of gravity. Um, and he defines it different ways. Um, there, are, there are times when it's defined as almost a uh, you know, physical mass of an enemy force. There are times when it's described in kind of less physical terms as, as, as something that gives the uh, adversary um, their power. 
something upon which the adversary's power um, is is dependent. So I want to say it was February. I was at a conference and we had some people briefing. It was all ISIL focused. We had some people briefing, given a, a briefing about ISIL. And then, um, of course, someone had someone raised their hand and asked the Carl uh, von Clausewitz question, which is, uh, "What is their center of gravity?" And the person on the stage gave a very Iraq and Syria-centered answer, and they talked about Raqqa in Syria, and they talked about Mosul in Iraq, and then later, but that was from a um, regional point of view, and then later. We had another presenter stand up, and they spoke. Um, they spoke of the uh, functional point of view, which is you know focusing on ISIL as a worldwide kind of phenomenon. But it was what's interesting is that when you get when you attend conferences like this, you see that there, and this is traditionally a thing. There is a disconnect between the regionals and the functionals. So generally in kind of national security world, there are regional people who really, really understand a region and they're a function, you know, so they, they may be experts in Syria or experts in Iraq, but then separate from that, there may be, um, I, you know, ICE subject matter experts who follow the terrorist organization, the violence organization, wherever it goes in the world. And sometimes connect between the regionals and the functional. So as I saw in, a regional expert brief, and then I saw a functional expert brief. I just raised my hand and I said, did anyone ever think that victory in the region may cause, you know, issues throughout the rest of the world in the, you know, kind of functional area? And everybody in the room kind of looked at me like, uh, Phil, we don't know what you're talking about because regionals do this and functionals do that. And I, and I kind of had to push a bit and say, but if we do one thing, isn't it going to affect the other? And so um, I kind of kept it to myself for a few months and had been thinking about it. And then when I saw Colonel uh, Warren from uh, Operation Inherent Resolve do this thing on Reddit, I said, oh, there it is. There is the regional center of gravity concept focused on Mosul and Raqqa. Now is time where I can write about it. So the time seemed right. I had kind of a hook to base my article on based upon the discussion that Colonel Warren did about center of gravity within a regional context. And so that was what uh, really caused me to write my article. And this term of center of gravity, in your opinion, how does it reflect ISIL's operational capacities? So it it, it reflects really two different things. So within the regional context within the Iraq and Syria portion, um, the fact that they have Raqqa and Mosul gives them the ability to generate the force uh, with which they can, you know, take and hold terrain. Now, right now there are various offensives going on and they're slowly losing terrain, but the fact that they were able to take it and hold it to begin with was based upon the strength that they drew from that those centers of gravity in uh, Mosul and Raqqa. They were able to get the logistical support they needed. They were able to tax the populations that live there to kind of fund their uh, activities. And so from a regional standpoint, um, that was really where it was. And as a 
as you said, these strongholds of Raqqa and Mosul are very important. They've been very important on the level of operational capacity, as we just talked about, um, ideological ideas in the sense of it's an Islamic state and therefore to have this new caliphate, we need the land and especially land that has a lot of significant meanings. Now we're hearing this idea of potentially Raqqa or Mosul falling. And I want to look at that because if it was to fall from the hands of ISIL and we have this idea of defeating ISIL, which is a term we hear a lot, that's very ambiguous as well. <laughs> so what would that mean? I mean, ISIL is a part of a much vaster group, the Islamic State, and they have a lot of providence, provinces, excuse me, all over. So let's discuss the implications of this. Yeah, I, I think that if I waved my wand and Raqqa and Mosul fall, I think the first thing you're going to see is that not all of the ISIL members that are there are going to die in place. Some are going to escape and some are going to go back home and either possibly establish an IS movement or join an existing one. Some may go elsewhere to Libya or wherever there is a place where they can continue to do what they do. But the interesting thing is, to me is that I d actually did not speak of in the article is kind of the idea of social media and the ability to do research and, and, and figure out where to go. Um, you know, years, years ago when I was in Afghanistan, um, we used to say, you know, I, I don't fear the angry Taliban person who, you know, shakes their fist at the U.S. helicopter as it flies over. What I'm really scared of is a violent extremist who grew up um, in Europe or the United States, understands cultural norms, and has a passport. And so as I look at kind of the, um, the makeup of ISIL, and because the Internet is much more prolific and because a lot of the generation that have joined ISIL grew up on the Internet, know how to use these tech technologies. Um, I just I don't think that the fall of Raqqa and the fall of Mosul is, is – it, it, it will take care of the problem in a regional sense. But I think that, you know, as much as they say, you know, ISIL fighters are – are defecting and leaving and running and and I don't know if it's defecting, leaving or running as much as it might be redeployment to some other place. Um, while many uh, look at the regional problem and say, you know, what you have to do is defeat the caliphate, defeat the caliphate, and there seems to be this outlook that the caliphate is a physical place. And I would submit that um, after Raqqa and Mosul fall, that the caliphate will not be a physical place. It'll be in the mind, body, and spirit of the members of IS, and the caliphate will be in their head wherever they want, wherever they travel. That will be their caliphate. And so um, I, I think that the fall of Raqqa and the fall of Mosul will be braided into the ISIL narrative for a long time to come. And um, while the short-term idea of, of defeating large enemy formations within large urban areas 
within a specific region is attractive. I think the the long term issue is going to be uh, where do they go next? They're going to be in smaller groups. They're going to be much harder to target in smaller groups, and uh, it's going to be more of a law enforcement and intelligence problem than it is a uh, military problem. And so, the rest of the world needs to, you know, prepare themselves. And I think that's an interesting point because. It is possible to so-called defeat a group, but when there's a very strong ideology within that group, is it really possible to say that you can defeat the group's ideology? A lot of the time that lives on, it morphs into maybe a different version, but the basis of it is still there. And Colonel Warren also mentioned, well, he didn't quite mention this, but he differentiated ISIL's military center of gravity from its ideological one. So in the big picture, and and you've touched on this a bit just now, do you think it's reasonable to consider this separation of ISIL, its actual operational defeat versus its ideological life? I think from Colonel Warren's standpoint, it's a very, very reasonable thing to do because um, Operation Inherent Resolve has a very specific thing that they are supposed to do um, within a region and has certain targets that they're trying to go after. And so, you know, rather than Operation Inherent Resolve look at the entire problem of ISIL in the region and IS globally, and think, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? It's so overwhelming. Um, it's I think it's good for them to say, okay, let's deal with what we what can we affect here? We can affect the fight in Iraq and Syria, so let's affect that fight now. Um, I would rather a portion. Personally, I'd rather a portion of the problem is addressed than everyone sit back and say, oh my gosh, this problem is so complex. I just I have no idea what we should do. And so from a, from a military lens and from a regional lens, I think um, it's perfectly acceptable and, in fact, very good to focus just on ISIL. But I guess my overall question and kind of what I wanted to pose to the audience in the article is, you know, the, the, the very hard question, which is, and then what? Um, and a lot of the, at least in the region, the and then what is going to require, you know, changes probably to the Iraqi system of uh, government. There's a lot of people that are, you know, a lot of humanitarian tragedy and things that will be uncovered when both of those cities fall. But but the global and then what I think is is going to be very, very important. Um, I haven't seen a lot of writing yet about the global uh, and then what? And um, people have still kind of been using ISIL, IS, and ISIS interchangeably. And in my mind, I kind of separate ISIL as being the thing in Syria and Iraq, and then IS being the global phenomenon. And so as we attack one, I think we will, as we at- physically defeat one, I think we will strengthen the mind, body, and spirit of the other. And that was something that I really enjoyed in your article as well, that separation between ISIL, Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant, versus IS, Islamic State. In a sense, it is completely 
well, they are a completely different entity, even though they are connected. But one thing that came to my mind when I was thinking of that, this separation, yet not a separation, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. was the idea of funding. And we see ISIL using a lot of the resources in the Levant to fund their operations. What might happen if ISIL was no longer ISIL, if it was defeated, Mm -hmm. and you have the lack of these resources for the rest of IS and funding, how might that change or affect IS in the future? Yeah, I, I, um, I think, I don't think it, I think the only thing it's going to affect is the, um, the breadth of their capability. And here's what I mean by that. With the finances and the amount of resources that they were able to derive from their centers of gravity in Mosul and Raqqa, they were obviously able to take and hold a lot of terrain. But if we smash Mosul and Raqqa, they will no longer be able to generate the same amount of force because they will not have the same amount of resources. And so so then uh, I think that it, the uh, MO will fall back to the um, traditional kind of you know, terrorist tactics that we've seen, which is attacks um, in, on civilians in population centers using small arms and, um, you know, and, and explosives and, and things like that. I don't, the amount of resources it takes to get a few people together and have them attack somewhere with, uh, semi-automatic rifles with high-capacity magazines is frankly not that much that's just that that is not a a uh, resource constrained mo that's fairly easy to do so um, while they may not be able to take and hold terrain and establish the uh, physical caliphate as they have thus far i think their you know fall back a uh, way they will operate will be in a traditional terrorist context, um, and then the kind of caliphate will be more of a virtual uh, caliphate. And considering what you just said and, and thinking about past instances in history, are there any ones that stand out in your mind that reflect what we see now or similar to what we see now? and? what the implications were for those conflicts? I, I, I am unaware, and my study may be incomplete, but I am unaware of any type of scenario where you know, necessarily people from around the world converged on an area, fought, um, were not victorious, and then redispersed globally and then continued to fight um, however they could. Uh, I think due today, due to the internet and due to air travel and things like that, this this may be a unique phenomenon. Um, honestly, I I hope that I'm wrong. I don't think there's any article I've written that I hope I am more wrong about than this. But uh, I've been associated with this area, this function long enough that I don't think I am. Um, so. And I wanted to go back to the implications of if Mosul or Raqqa fell and the idea of fighters potentially dispersing 
either maybe going back to their home countries or other safe havens. I mean, looking at this, there are some logistical aspects that might make it harder. We have seen a lot of foreign fighters burning their passports on videos that they've presented online or shredding them. Um, so therefore, the documentation wouldn't be as easy to get their hands on to enter the country. However, we are hearing reports that it is possible to get fake identification. So let's look at the implications of this. I know that you did touch on it earlier in the talk, but I want to discuss this a little bit more. Yeah, the um, I think despite the possibly symbolic burning of travel documents and things like that, I really believe that that any adversary, if they want to achieve an effect long enough, uh, bad enough, will be able to adapt to the situation, whatever that situation may be. So, you know, there are networks throughout the world already where they smuggle drugs or they smuggle firearms or they smuggle people. Uh, I, I, I think that the, as we've seen over the years, the kind of natural intersection between traditional smuggling and the needs of violent extremist organizations. I think that that natural dependency of those two lines of effort will just continue. Um, I've also seen there was a report recently that the that some some ISIL members have been arrested in Iraq trying to blend in with the civilian populace that was evacuating one of the cities that was under siege. I just I I don't I don't think they're going to die in place, and I don't think they're all going to be caught, and uh, I don't know what's going to happen after that. But uh, it's probably not going to be very good. And you mentioned this in your article about the idea of a short-term resolution, and the airstrikes can be considered that. At least in my mind, it's yes, it's been going on for a while now, but. The idea of just hitting hard where the heart of this group is, you know, it's a short-term solution, so to speak, of dealing with ISIL. But is this realistic considering IS's, so Islamic State's reach, and also looking at the ideology, as we also talked about, as well as their operational capacity, because we've seen these attacks so far in, in Paris and Brussels, and we don't know what's happening with this Florida attack, there's... It's too soon to make any comments really on what's happening with that and any connections or non-connections. I'm just going to say that outright. Um, but let's look at this because we are seeing more operations by a group of individuals or you know, potentially lone wolves, depending on what attack we're talking about. But as you said earlier, there's small groups. You don't need a lot of operational capacity. You don't need a lot of money to create these big scale attacks. So what does the future potentially look like regarding this? Yeah, I, I think I think the future is going to vary in frequency and intensity, uh, country by country. But overall I think that the an ISIL attack on civilians in major cities using small arms is going to be something that's going to happen. How often it, ha it happens and the intensity of what it happens remains to be seen. I think that, that countries with um, 
more open societies have a greater potential for it to happen, but it doesn't necessarily mean it will happen. Um, I don't think there's necessarily a one fi- one size fits all uh, domestic security solution for this. I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down to uh, good intelligence work, good law enforcement investigative work, uh, good uh, watch listing efforts, and it's going to be something that happens over time. I there is not, and I've written about this in other articles too. In this, in the effort to manage threats that are posed by violent extremists, there's not going to be necessarily an end. Um, as I look back at the years of 2001 and the you know global war on terror, I make air quotes with my fingers as I say that. The word war kind of implies a beginning, a middle, and an end, and there's really not, um, for this at least. In this case, it's more of a persistent effort over time to ma- manage a threat. There's never going to be kind of the World War II equivalent to um, the Japanese you know, surrendering on a large battleship or the Marines raising a flag over Iwo Jima. There's not going to be those large symbolic things in this kind of global effort to uh, ma- ma- manage threats, as I call it. And it's going to take a whole host of capabilities, both military, law enforcement, intelligence, as well as others such as financial and uh, diplomatic. So I think it's just a long-term effort of of managing the threat, disrupting plots, using countering violent extremism um, efforts to try to uh, ensure people don't join these movements in the first place. And it's not something that's going to go away anytime soon. It's just going to take many, many, many years of, of, uh, of diligence. In your opinion, would you say that, as you just said, it's many, many years of diligence, but we've seen a lot of extreme, radical, however you want to term them, ideologies, whether it's with ISIS, ISIL, IS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, there are so many groups, um, groups here in the States as well. We have a lot of groups that have white supremacists, very strong ideologies. So in a sense, this mitigating threats and, and constantly being on top of this ideology and then the next ideology, it almost seems like an ongoing process that maybe we've mitigated one of the ideologies and the threats attached with that one, yet as we're doing that, another one pops up. What are your thoughts on this? I would totally agree with that. The, the, I think the overarching thing is that, that, you know, we may, you know, Al Qaeda may, may be, strategically defeated as everybody likes to say and that may lead to the rise of ISIL which they may be and then ISIL may be militarily defeated within our region but that may increase the uh, attraction of IS as an ideology and I think things are going to continue to lead one thing to another to another and over time we're just going to have to figure out how to address it um, at the same time, let me footstomp this. I'm not saying I don't want to sound like I'm doom and gloom. I don't want to sound like anybody should change their behaviors or hide in their house. 
Um, because definitely you should not do that. You should go out and live your life and enjoy your life because that's what you should do. Um, but at the same time, from a national security standpoint, uh, we need to understand that short-term military victories don't always translate into long-term securities. That's a very, very good point. Going back to your article, what is it that you want the readers of this article to get when they finish the article? What is that lasting impression that you want to leave with them? And I'm hoping that listeners will actually read the article. We will post the link to it on this um, posting of the show. But since we have the author here, what is that lasting impression that you want people to leave with when they're done reading it? The lasting impression I want people to leave with is that there are secondary effects to every national security act that the U.S. undertakes. And while militarily defeating ISIL within Iraq and Syria is a good thing, uh, we need to understand that there are going to be secondary effects to that, and we should not be in uh, denial of those. We should figure out, assess what they are, figure out what needs to be done to address them, and then uh, make sure that happens. In your opinion, looking at these secondary effects, do you think the general public, who might not be as knowledgeable about all the ins and outs of operations and ideologies and, and groups and so forth, do you think that they'll be open to this idea of the next step? Because I do hear a lot of people just in general public, having this idea that, okay, we're doing these airstrikes, we're going to get rid of ISIL, and that's that, wipe your hands clean, we're good, we're, we're ready to go on and move on with our lives. But how do you get the general public to realize that this is, as you said, a very long-term endeavor? I think, I think the first thing is I think the general public is very, very smart, and I think that some people um, – don't think they are, and so the foreign policy, national security world tries to create six-word uh, bumper sticker slogans uh, based on that unreasonable assumption of the uh, mental capacity of the average person on the street. And I think you could sit; anybody could sit down with the average person on the street and and walk them through this whole article, and they'd go, "Oh yeah, that 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 makes sense." I don't I don't think that is a is a is an issue. That's a great comment, and I completely understand what you're saying. I think we do have to give credit to people and their knowledge and hoping that they'll actually have that urge to find out more on a subject. Once again, we like to give our listeners and our guests the opportunity to hear our guests potentially touch on something that we might not have touched on in the talk, talk it, excuse me, the talk, <laughs> or... Um, maybe you have a final thought to conclude this talk. So I'd like to hand the floor over to you. My final thoughts to all the listeners would be whenever you see a headline in the national security arena that points to a decisive outcome, points to a, you know, and uses the words, you know, win or defeat or destroy, your automatic reaction should be to ask the question, and then what? those are really good set of words to ask because it keeps the discussion going, which is really important. And especially in a case like this, 
it's ongoing and then what <laughs> so i want to thank you so much for coming on the show phil and i encourage our listeners to read his article because it really does get you thinking and we love that here at the loopcast thinking is good and i'm sure we'll have you on the show again to talk about something else sounds good thank you so much for having me on chelsea